1: the old world is dying the new world struggles to be born now is the time of monsters with those words from gramsci i welcome to the time of monsters podcast as always sponsored by the nation magazine So uh, this past week, one of the major monsters of the last century died at the venerable patriarchal age of 93. I'm talking about the Reverend Pat Robertson, who had been a religious broadcaster, a sort of pioneer of evangelizing on television, and also a, a key figure in the sort of fusion of the religious right with the Republican Party, which took place in the 1970s and 80s. And to Talk about who Pat Robertson was. I wanted to bring on someone who has a real expertise in the religious right and its history. And I'm very happy to have on Sarah Posner, a journalist who's published widely in The American Prospect, The Guardian, The Nation, and elsewhere. And the author of two books, most recently, Unholy, How White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump, and in 2008, God's Prophet. Faith Fraud, and the Republican Crusade for Value Voters. So, Sarah, I first of all, thank you for being on. And uh, second, maybe just like setting this up, like what was the importance of Pat Robertson on national politics?
2: Well, Pat Robertson influenced national politics and in particular Republican Party politics through numerous means through founding one of the first religious broadcasting companies the you know the Christian Broadcasting Network by founding the Christian Coalition which brought evangelicals into politics both as voters and as candidates by founding a Christian university Regent University and by himself running for president in 1988 in the Republican presidential primary and in the years, decades after that, even though he was unsuccessful in that run, he remained a figure with this sort of kingmaker status. You know, all the Republican candidates would go to Regent, go to Virginia Beach to get his blessing. He appeared on television, if not daily, you know, at least weekly. And he left an imprint on in our on our politics and on Republican politics, perhaps as no other religious right figure has.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. And I think particularly the 1988 run, you know, he lost, of course, to George H.W. Bush. Uh, but initially, he had a pretty strong showing, especially in Iowa. And I think that was a kind of wake-up call to a lot of people in the Republican Party and nationally, just how strong the evangelical vote was. And I think that, you know, after him, it did become you know, more apparent that the path to a Republican presidential nomination is you have to sort of bend the knee to Pat Robertson and what he stood for. So let's talk about one particular aspect of his influence, which you just recently wrote about. And this is an article in Talking Points Memo that I'll link to in the show notes. And I would strongly encourage all listeners to read. It's very informative, which is that he helped create a sort of cadre of activist lawyers who are becoming very prominent in pushing their religious rights agenda. Do you want to talk a bit about that?
2: Sure. In 1986, he took over a fledgling Christian law school from Oral Roberts University, another Christian university, this one in, T- in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Oral Roberts had founded this, this Christian law school with the purpose of creating a law school that would teach law from the Christian perspective and create or educate Christian lawyers who would go out in the world and become leaders and progenitors of this Christian idea of the law, as opposed to the secular idea of the law. And the, the brainchild of all of this was a lawyer and political activist named Herb Titus, who was a protege of R.J. Rushduni, the founder of Christian Reconstructionism, which calls for the institution of biblical law in every facet of life every facet of public and private life. But they were sort of flailing around in part because they had litigated this very protracted case with the American Bar Association, which had initially denied them accreditation because they required their students and their faculty to sign a statement of faith, which the ABA found to be at odds with its non-discrimination policy, because to go there or to teach there, you had to sign this Christian statement of faith. Uh, and at the end of the day, they were, I think, pretty financially battered from all of that. And Pat Robertson swooped in literally on his white horse and took over the law school. And it is now known as Regent Law School. But in Oral Roberts' battle with the ABA, which he won, they forced the ABA to change their accreditation standards so that they could still be accredited, even though they had the statement of faith. And you know, Pat Robertson swooped in, he turned it into Regent Law School which has become a powerhouse among Christian law schools, the other prominent one being Liberty at Jerry Falwell's Liberty University. But Regent in particular has produced many lawyers who have gone on to, let's say, prominent positions within the Christian right, like the president of Alliance Defending Freedom, Michelle Bachman, was one of the first graduates of the law school. Now she's a dean at the Robertson School of Government at Regent University. Dan Cox, who ran as the Republican nominee for governor in Maryland last year and was also an attendee of the insurrection, Um, and Mark Martin, who at the time was the dean of the law school, and he ghostwrote a brief for Trump that went to the Supreme Court and was unsuccessful, but was an attempt to overturn the election results in four states. So they have produced not only just lawyers, Christian lawyers that you've never heard of, but some of the most prominent Christian lawyers in the country. And I think without Robertson's willingness to not only take over the school, but pour money into it and and make it bigger and more influential, that possibly wouldn't have happened. It's a huge imprint that he has left on the law these A lot of the lawyers, especially the Alliance Defending Freedom, has had a lot of success at the Supreme Court, overturning Roe v. Wade, undermining the se- separation of church and state, eroding LGBTQ rights. I mean, it's a, it's a really big deal.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you describe the sort of dispute between the Bar Association and Regent, I mean, th- that dispute brings to you know, mind this fundamental tension between religious freedom and sort of anti-discrimination law. And it's so curious that that has become the wedge that the legal right has been using to push back against anti-discrimination law. they basically, you know, like famously in the sort of cases involving wedding cakes for gay couples, mm-hmm. uh, but in many other cases as well, it's become the kind of standard operating procedure for the religious right to say that, you know, if we have First Amendment rights and we want to practice our faith, we have to discriminate. And this is an argument that has actually, you know, won a lot of support in the Supreme Court. And it's kind of yes. really remaking American society. So- um, absolutely
2: is. And I think that the battle with the ABA, which happened 40 years ago, was a real portent of, of what was to come.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, 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 you know, like, we, right from the start, like, this is the sort of origins of it. And the other thing, maybe, to note is, you know, the way in which the courts have become an increasing bulwark of the right you know, as we've seen, like, uh, with the current courts, you know, most famously or infamously with uh, the Dobbs decision overturning the constitutional right to reproductive freedom. But more generally, like, this is the this is where the right has increasingly seen as their fortress. This is where they can, they're the strongest, and this is where they can push through a sort of, you know, agenda that is otherwise unpopular in, in democracy. So how important, I mean, Was that like in sort of Robertson's legacy? Because it seems to me that this is actually a change on the right that like, you know, I don't think like in the 70s, the right saw the courts as, you know, the the main path to power.
2: Well, I think that Robertson and his empire, you know, maybe not completely just him, but the empire he created helped pave the way for a lot of this stuff, in addition to his role in creating and sustaining regent law school and remember it was a regent law school graduate who argued the master successfully ar- argued the masterpiece cake shop case the case involving mm-hmm. the the christian bakers challenge to the civil rights the civil rights law in, in colorado that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity But also, you know, within Robertson's empire is the American Center for Law and Justice, which is led by Jay Sekulow, who has not only been a lawyer to former President Trump, but was also a key figure back in the George W. Bush administration in vetting and getting through George W. Bush's judicial nominees. Now, of course, you know, in the Trump administration, that role was very much played by Leonard Leo. But remember, Trump wouldn't have been as successful at stacking the courts if George W. Bush hadn't come before him and already begun that process, right? So it was because of, you know, George H. W. Bush that we have Alito and Roberts. So and, you know, Trump just built on that. So I think there's a multitude of ways in which Robertson has been influential in this way. And that's not even to touch on the influence that he has through his or he had through his television programs and just the the media platform that he had to enable him to perpetuate these ideas there as well.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. And I think, I mean, that might be a good entry point for just a sort of broader discussion of. Who Pat Robertson was and where he came from. So, you know, he, he was came from actually a, quite a prominent family. His father was a senator in Virginia with the wonderfully Faulknerian name Absalon Willis Robertson, and <laughs> was a kind of a, a, a Democrat, but I think it's fair to say a very conservative Democrat, as many Southern Democrats were in that generation. But, you know, like this kind of prominent family. And his mother was more religiously inclined and was in all his accounts, Pat Robertson talks about how pious his mother was, and she was this great prayer warrior. And so, you know, coming from this prominent family, Pat Robertson, you know, was a member of the elite from the start. He, you know, went to a very fancy prep school, went to Yale, you know, was on track to a sort of Wall Street career, and then he kind of had a crisis of faith. And and then, you know, sort of had this born again or return to Jesus moment. And I I think in his career, one can see a fusion of the mother and father, you know, the political career of the father combined with the sort of piety of the mother. But can we say something about like the nature of the faith? Like what sort of I mean, an evangelical Protestant people would say, but like what particular what distinguished him from other members of the, the religious right?
2: Well, it's interesting because I, I, I thought that a lot of the mainstream media obituaries of him pointed out that he had been a Baptist minister, but I don't think of, I mean, maybe way back when Pat Robertson was a Baptist minister, but I think of him as a full-blown charismatic Christian or Pentecostal, you know, very much believing in the gifts of the spirit, prophecy, miracles, speaking to tongues, faith healing, the prosperity gospel, Um, That was very much Pat Robertson of the Christian Broadcasting Network. And that was very much Pat Robertson of his presidential campaign and of the Christian coalition. And I, I, I sort of struggle as to why the, the, you know, it's, it, it appears very difficult for the mainstream media to sort of get their arms around that kind of religious expression and religious practice. But since the time that Pat Robertson first got into politics to now, That has become the predominant evangelical or charismatic expression in Republican Party politics. It was slowly becoming that way. A lot of the previous president, Republican presidents and presidential nominees tried to keep it at arm's length. And Trump sort of brought it out of the shadows and legitimized it and mainstreamed it so that now its is, it is it. It is, you know, you can see it in QAnon, you can see it in MAGA, you can see it just in the Republican Party in general. And, you know, no one should mistake that Pat Robertson played a huge role in in mainstreaming that kind of religious expression. And in particular, that kind of religious expression in politics, which is, of course, very dangerous. It's anti reason it's anti-science it's anti-church state separation but it also the 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 bottom line is it rejects you know evidence and replaces it with you know sort of spiritual experience and and this is you know this this was what robertson was doing on the airwaves and this is what he helped you know he he definitely helped pave that
1: yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, think you you outlined the the distinctiveness very well, and but I, I want to really underscore it because I think that this is something that not just the mainstream media, but I think a lot of people who are not of that evangelical world don't actually like understand. They kind of lump everyone together as mm-hmm. well. You know, if you're like a right wing Protestant, you know, you're fundamental. You know, terms like fundamentalist, evangelical, Pentecostal. I think for a lot of people on the outside, they all get Yeah, it's worth drawing out the distinction just a little bit, just so people are clear on this. I mean, okay, so there's a kind of, you know, mainstream Protestantism that has a conservative wing to it. Like, you know, like you mentioned the Baptist. One could also say, you know, like there's sort of Methodist Presbyterians. And these are all people, you know, tracing back to the, uh, the Protestant Reformation who have a very strong belief. In the you know, priesthood of all believers, and in the importance of the Bible, the centrality of reading the Bible, but are otherwise, you know, not necessarily would believe that you that a Christian has the power to heal people who are sick, would necessarily have the power to divine the future, right? like in in, in some ways that, that sort of Protestant tradition, like I would say traditional Christianity in general is actually like anti-superstition. Like like, you know, historians of religion talk about, the early role of religion was to supplant superstition, that you have instead of many gods and magic everywhere, you have a story of one God, and where faith comes through studying the the teachings of the God through Bible the Bible and obeying rules, obeying the law. And the sort of Pentecostal experience, Within that world is a kind of, you know, rebellion, you know, not just against non-belief, but also as a rebellion against that sort of, you know, more austere religiosity. You know, the religiosity that is like, you know, we have to learn theology and study the Bible. Where does, I mean, what do the Pentecostals believe that's distinct from, you know, normal Protestantism? Well, I would would use...
2: I would use the word charismatic because oh. Pentecostals, Pentecostals may be a little bit more specific. Yeah. And I would. I would think that charismatic sort of encompasses Pentecostal as well, but they, they very much, well, I mean, evangelicals believe that they have a personal relationship with Jesus Mm -hmm. Christ, who is their savior, right? So that personal, that, that belief in a personal relationship is definitely there for all evangelicals, regardless of whether Mm -hmm. they're a Pentecostal charismatic or what you might call a mainstream evangelical, but charismatics very much believe that that relationship that they get direct revelations from God, that God speaks to them, that God delivers prophecy to them, that if they if they have a strong belief in God, they can speak something into existence whether it's Health, faith healing, or wealth, prosperity gospel. And they believe in signs and wonders and miracles. You know, you might be out in the world and, you know, you see a certain color car, and that's going to make you believe that that's a sign that you're going to get a red car, or, you know, from the absolutely mundane to the absolutely important, like who's going to get elected president. And Robertson was definitely part of that world and was a a promoter of that world through his television network but he was also part of a of a broader movement that was taking place over the course of his professional life in this world from you know the 1960s onward where that kind of charismatic expression was becoming more common in evangelical circles and was becoming mainstreamed in evangelical circles. So at the same time that Robertson was founding his his network and university and working towards running for president himself, someone like Oral Roberts who was very much a Pentecostal and believed in all of the signs and wonders and speaking in tongues and believe, you know built the entire you know seed faith prosperity gospel theology all of all of these people like them and pastors and the fact that they had these television networks like Robertson's and later the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which gave airtime to these kind of charismatic expressions of, of the faith. All of that was just always building on itself throughout this entire period. Robertson was a very important figure in it. Many others were too. But I would also argue that Donald Trump was a very important figure in it because unlike previous Republicans, he did not keep them at arm's length. That said, they understood, they absolutely understood the necessity of reaching those voters to win elections. So that's why George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush very quietly reached out to them. The difference with Trump being that he very openly reached out to them and welcomed them into the White House. So, you know, in Robertson's life, we can see that entire trajectory, a trajectory that he was also a driving force of.
1: That's right, yeah. And uh, I think we mentioned along the way that television was the main sort of source of this. You know, he was the founder of the, was it the Christian National Broadcasting? The Christian Broadcasting Network, yeah. Christian Broadcasting Network, CVN, mm-hmm. and had the show 700 Club, and was a kind of, I mean, there's there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, one is that it's sort of like an economic pioneer, that this is like, you know, the start in the 70s, the sort of the stranglehold of the three big networks is breaking down. And there was avenues through cable and through satellite to like reach more people. And, you know, that the precondition for things like CNN box and also for CBN. But also stylistically, the, the 700 Club was very much a kind of, you know, it's like a talk show thing. I think one commentator compared him to like Merv Griffin, like sort of, you know, like he's like, you know, he's you, it's a talk show. He's sitting down talking. He's not like you know, some of the other more people like Jimmy Swaggart or uh, Tammy Faye Baker, Jim Baker, who were like, you know, like, like very energetic, screaming, running around. They, they were what Marshall McLuhan would call hot. They were hot figures in a cool medium, which mm-hmm. I think like, you know, Robertson, I'm sure he did some of that running around and jumping. But often, like whenever I see clips of him, he seems more like a cool character, like this kind of sedate figure who's kind of like softly explaining his outrageous ideas.
2: Yeah, and I think that the contrast is those figures, you saw them in their pulpits. Robertson made the news desk at CBN his pulpit, which was like a very different kind of contribution, I think.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and and very uh, also pioneer sort of fusing of television with politics because when he ran in nineteen eighty eight, he said that one advantage he has over other Republicans is that he's very telegenic, and that this is very important. <laughs> and you know, like sort of in some ways a prefigure for future people like Pat Buchanan and Donald Trump, you know, who yeah. came out of television and mm-hmm. used that to run for politics. So, so in all these areas like a really important figure. Perhaps the last thing I'll end on is the sort of foreign policy. Now, at The Nation, I read an article, which again, I'll link to in the show notes, talking about, you know, the very close relationship he had in the 1980s with the Guatemalan dictator, Mont. Within a week of Mont's coup in 1982, on the 700 Club, Pat Robertson was saying, you know, let us pray for him. And he raised a lot of money. And, you know, Mont, not to, you know, to using the most factual language possible, you know, ran a genocidal regime. The government of Guatemala concluded, you know, eventually tried and convicted him for war crimes and crimes against humanity and especially genocide against the Mayan population. And... Robertson had a very large interest in foreign policy, which included, you know, Central America, supporting of right-wing regimes and their death squads, supporting of apartheid South Africa, white mm-hmm. Rhodesia, yeah. supporting of a splinter group in Mozambique that was financed by the Rhodesian government. That you know, the State Department compared to the Kemmer Rouge. So, so, so this is a very dark legacy. And I think that Israel was also part of this story. And it was striking to me that, like, you know, Pat Robertson, one of the few groups. That was kind of mourned his passing, that's not a, on the right, was APAC, or at least AIPAC's not, on, not on the right. <laughs> well, okay, maybe, maybe not seen as <laughs> traditionally. I mean, APAC gives a lot of money to Republicans, to Democrats. I mean, like, no, they, I, I, they, I get it. Yeah. A lot of Democrats <laughs> take money from APAC and we'll go speak to them. And so, APAC had this tweet saying, APAC mourns the passing of Pat Robertson, who is a great friend of Israel and a pioneer in the modern Christian Zionist movement. So I just wanted to ask you, what do you think of that tweet and where that's coming from?
2: Well, I think it's not unusual or atypical for APAC to praise Christian Zionists. I think that in the mindset of an organization like APAC, any friend of Israel is a friend of ours, you know, even if that person says and stands for things and advocates for things that are at odds with the vast majority of american jews and even though he advocates for jews to be converted to christianity i mean you know i mean that is an unmistakable component of the broadcasting on on christian broadcasting network and things that that you know robertson stood for for you know his lifetime but you know i think from christian zionist support for israel quote unquote you know is driven by their idea of biblical prophecy and what needs to happen for or what will happen in the run up to Jesus's return and to the battle at Armageddon where Jesus will be victorious and and sit on his throne on the temple mount for his thousand year reign that's what they believe they believe in biblical prophecy and so if facts on the ground comport with their b- b- biblical prophecy Or, you know, in fairness, also with their politics, such as the occupation and greater settlement building and greater deprivation of rights of Palestinians, then, you know, that's great. Then, you know, for them, that fits with their worldview. And for APEC, it fits with their worldview to have another organization or individual who's not Jewish, basically endorsing their view of how Israel should behave with regard to you know domestic politics, the occupation, and global affairs. It's a sad, sad reality of the way an organization like APAC interacts with Christian Zionists. And you know i've I've been reporting on this for I don't know, like fifteen years, and nothing's nothing seems to change it.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's I, I think that's a good explanation as to where impact is coming from. But I want to underscore, like, I mean, there's two aspects of this that should make this a scandal. One of which is that you know, like, uh, Pat Robertson definitely, you know, trafficked in anti-Semitic language and rhetoric. Michael Lind had a, a really great report back in 1995 you know, about the sort of all the talk about Jewish bankers in Pat Robertson's writing. Uh, mm-hmm. Pat Robertson would refer to The Economist as the Rothschild magazine, The Economist. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, and but so, you know, I mean, that's one reason why, among many, that Jews might be wary of Pat Robertson. But, but the other aspect is, what does that support of Israel entail? Now, Pat, The Forward had a good article about this, but Pat Robertson, you know, said that the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin was, you know, like God's will because you know mm-hmm. he was too willing to negotiate with the Palestinians, uh, and also, I mean, even more remarkably, in two thousand and six, when Ariel Sharon had a stroke, Pat Robertson said, "Well, again, this is God's will because Ariel Sharon had withdrawn from Gaza, and that's not God's will." So I have to ask, like, even if you're willing to sort of cynically say, "Well," we can tolerate anti-Semitism if you're pro-Israel, like what does Pat Robertson's pro-Israel stance mean if he's like, you know, celebrating the death or the assassination or physical incapacitation of Israeli leaders?
2: Well, (laughs) that is just his view of the world. And you could argue also that, you know, he claims to be pro-American or pro-America, but a lot of the things he says Or said are comparably Mm anti-American, you know, such as, you know, maybe, you know, America deserved, you know, 9-11 because of feminism and gay rights or, you know, comments he made about Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, sorry, Mm -hmm. you know, so. Yeah. Who no, had... Not
1: nation publisher, Katrina Vanden. Right,
2: right. Make that very <laughs> clear. Although maybe he had something to say about her at one point. I don't know. But I guess what I'm saying is, you know, for someone who believes that everything that happens in a, in the world is due to like God, either having favor on somebody or having disfavor on somebody or a country, you know, and expressing that, you know, that's, that's a really, sorry, that's a really fucked up way to view the world. Right. And so, you know, Is it problematic for people, is it problematic for American Zionists to support a guy who, you know, who said those things about Sharon or about... Well, similarly, you know, is it okay for the Republican Party to support and welcome people who have those views about things that go on in America and, for that matter, the world? And I think this is one of the central central things that we need to talk about right now with regard to the American, the Republican Party, because the, this is such a critical, crucial core of what the Republican Party is now. You know, people who believe in these kinds of, you know, prophecies and imprecatory prayer and, you know, blessings and curses from God. I mean, you know, how do we run our politics when one of the parties believes in that?
1: Yeah, no, I think that is the, the the sort of big question. And I think you've really outlined, you know, who Pat Robertson was and his sort of, you know, unfortunately, his the massive influence that he's had over the years. And so once again, I want to thank Sarah Posner for being on the program. I, you know, it's not a bit a cheerful discussion, but I, I think it's, everyone will agree, it's been very enlightening. Thanks, Jeep. When
2: you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes